You're listening to KDOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on November 12th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was sibling rivalry. Music was performed by Njuzu, Juno's marimba band. Our first speaker tonight is Stuart Gerger. Stuart is the middle of three sons raised in suburban Detroit. Even if someone dies, he will still be the middle son, always. His bedroom had an extra closet, nine inches wide, eight feet tall, and six feet deep. A mattress was stored in there, as well as many monsters. I almost thought that said neighbors, but in the closet there were just monsters. He never saw, but knew they were there. He still doesn't know why his room had this closet, not one of his brothers. He became an architect, but so what? His brother is a doctor. (laughs) His two beautiful daughters, fortunate not to have brothers, fight with each other in a much more civilized way than he did with his brothers. He first considered the idea of sibling rivalry when his older brother, during an adulthood conversation, responded to his question with, no, Stuart, I never really gave rivalry with you a single thought. To share some of what he is still digesting from that conversation 30 years ago, here is Stuart Gerger. There are three of us. My older brother, Mr. Smarty Pants. My younger brother, Mr. How many junk cars can I put in my backyard? And me, the innocent sensitive one. You know, with siblings, the whole thing is really just one story, but I'd need a lot more than seven minutes. So I've pulled a couple of of extractions out. Now, my daughters share a really a great physical comfort from each other with by contact. You know, they they, uh, hug each other, they hold hands, they braid each other's hair. They have kind of a graceful little dance between them. They they know it by heart. It's it's so sweet, you know, the, the joy of sisters. I have no sisters. I have just brothers. And closeness and touching for us was uh, was something like this. My older brother's shirtless belly laid flat on my face (laughs) as the back of my head was molding the living room carpet. And he was was developing a uh, a hands-free smother technique. (laughs) And he he was kind of making it up on the spot, you know. He was about nine years old, just right there. He's very creative. But the thing was my response. My response. I sent him straight up in the air, high enough so that I could slip out of the vice. It was brilliant. My teeth. Who knew you could, you could bite someone at that angle and actually launch them vertically? It was incredible. Remember, this is like in the early 60s. He was John Glenn. I, I was the booster rocket. It, it was, you know, so, see, it was in, in Brother World, day-to-day survival was about as good as you could get. My mother was very young. She was usually, she said she was cooking, but she was hiding in the kitchen. Every once in a while, you'd hear a little feeble little signal would come out, wait till your father gets home. And we would ignore it, you know. So I'm, but I'm the middle of three boys. So it was a tough spot because I was, on one hand, I had the enforcer, and on the other hand, I had the enforcer's protectorate. It was definitely tough because it was all about resourcefulness. When you're a little kid, you're learning resourcefulness. How could I continue to antagonize my little brother but still survive my big one? 
So it was always trying to come up with different ways to do it. And that, that uh, what let's we call it, the mandibular contraction of that day when I launched the Enforcer up into space, it shifted completely my, uh, my what we call like my self-esteem. You know, I went from being a victim to being an innovator. I saw adversity right there in front of me, and I created opportunity. Never mind, never mind the moral depravity of like the fact that I really wanted to rip his skin and flood the room with his blood. Because that moment was the beginning of an outlook on life. It was the birth of optimism. <laughs> Thank you, big brother. It was great. So we come around to that idea, hopefully at about the three-minute mark here. <clears throat> and it's, it's not sibling love. It's not sibling hate. It's not sibling rivalry. It's a job. Being a sibling is our first job. We didn't apply for it. We're not going to get paid. No one can fire us. We, they, we have no supervisor. We have no staff. Can't delegate some of the things we don't want to do. But you see, we siblings are a lifetime job for each other. Now, our parents, they're kind of invisible. You know, they're like the air we breathe. They're always there. They're always around. Um, you know, they're, they're just there. But what sibling is just there? You know, rarely is your annoying little brother or your threatening big brother just there. There may have been a little revulsion, uh, some adoration, but maybe the hum of constant competition in the background. But never just there. Your siblings are, are they're, they're, they're more than just there. So a job, a job isn't something, though, this whole idea of a sibling being a job. So a job isn't something you just do, you know, the diaper changing and stuff like that. It's something you learn from. So you think about, like, like who, through their mere presence, taught you that you weren't the only one in the world? When did we begrudgingly except the fact that we were going to have to share. How did we learn that life isn't always fair? Stuart, he's got three more grains of salt in his bowl. Just, you know, stop whining and shut up. Who showed us how to be a friend? Maybe the way they showed us was by how not to do it, so that when we got to be with our real friends, we understood how to do it. It was your sibling. Who showed us about loyalty? Here's a great story about loyalty. My mother, who's now 82, when she was a kid, she was on, a, on the school grounds, a little boy was hassling her. So her older brother comes over without a word, jumps on the kid's, pummeling the perp, just smashing it. All of a sudden, in this story, a BB gun appears, and a BB appears in my uncle's neck. Guy doesn't flinch. He's pummeling the perp, BB's in there, finishes to his satisfaction, he gets up, walk, leaves, walks out of the playground without a word, goes home. And to this day, I have not been able to have my Uncle Jerry confirm. He hasn't spoken one word. Is it, did this happen? Is it not? Is it true or not? The most I've gotten from him out of this whole story of years of trying to figure out, did she make this up, is he did a little snorty giggle about 49 years ago. And I, did my mother thank him? I don't know. The point is, the guy was just doing his job. That was his job. So, so that, that, that's the obvious job. But sometimes the job is just a thought or just a, uh, you know, an appreciation uh, maybe a phone call. Sometimes those phone calls with my brother turn into, especially when it's about Obama, they turn into like a grease fire. And, uh, and then the instruction manual has uh, very specific rules for that since the beginning. Don't push that button. Do not push this button. It will make a mess. You cannot push it even if you want to. That's been a particularly hard rule to, to follow. <clears throat> so anyway, after 59 years of gibbling, that's my contraction for job of sibling. comes from the word gibble. So after 59 years of gibbling, I think I'm getting the hang of it. The point is, as we get older, the job of gibbling changes. You know, instead of our parents planning for us, we're planning for them. Things like that. But gibbling is never a boring job, and it's actually a pretty good job. Thank you.
All right, our next speaker is Marcus, Marcus Blankenship. Marcus is a 28-year-old first-year teacher at Thunder Mountain. He was raised by his grandparents in the small town of Odenville, Alabama, near Birmingham. Marcus has lived his entire life in Alabama until around August 15th, when he moved to Juneau for his teaching job. That began on August 20th. He turned down a job in Alabama in order to take the job here in Juneau because he was ready for an adventure. And get this, teaching Alaska history has proved itself to be an adventure for this Alabama native. Please welcome Marcus. You know, if you can't tell from the way I talk in my introduction, I am not from Alaska, I am from Alabama. Uh, and I have that very, you know, traditional Alabama family. My uh, father's my brother, my mother's my ex-sister-in-law, my, my brothers and sisters are my nieces and nephews. Um, and this is true, this is very true, which I should say, though, I was adopted by my grandparents. I was adopted by my father's parents, so that's why my mother is my ex-sister-in-law. Um, uh, some... Sometimes it's best that way. It's easier to not talk to your ex-sister-in-law. Um, uh, but actually, though, as far as my real brothers and sisters, there are nine of us. My mother and father, uh, while they were married, they had three. That's me, Amanda, and Matthew. And my father, from his first marriage, he had a daughter. Uh, and my mother, from her second, let's call it a marriage, uh, she, had, she had a daughter as well, um, and then my father's been married to my stepmother, my current stepmother, for 15 years. So I've got two stepsisters through that. And then my father and stepmother adopted uh, their two foster children about seven years ago. So when you add it up, there are nine of us. Um, and so, yeah, I should have lots and lots of stories about brothers and sisters. But here's the thing. We were all raised in different places. Um, uh, my sister stayed with our mother. I went with my grandparents, my brother stayed with our father, uh, the oldest sister. She lived in Georgia, and I haven't seen her since 2005. Um, uh, and, you know, on top of that, the, the more I thought about it, um, well, I do have some, some stories about my brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, I, I'm not really that close with them. Uh, the more I thought about stories about my brothers and sisters, I started to kind of get a little bit depressed because I don't have lots of stories about Amanda and Matthew. Um, you know, Matthew was always a stoner, um, uh, and, you know, I was the overachiever, so we didn't fit in. Uh, Amanda, pardon my language, but she's a bitch. Um, <laughs> I, I love my sister, and she, she fits in in the military. She, she went into the military, and it was a perfect fit. But, um, you know, that said, as, as much as I do love them, we were all raised in different places. Um, and so I don't have lots of traditional stories. I, I can't tell you about the time I launched my brother into the air. Um, uh, my sister and I did work together for a moment at Joe's Crab Shack. Um, that, was, that was just terrible. But, but so as I thought about it, I started to get a little bit, started to feel kind of sad. I don't, have, I don't have lots of stories that I can tell. And then I thought, well, what? what the hell am I going to tell to these people? Uh, I got on the internet and I tried to look up stories, so I thought maybe I can, you know, maybe I can tell somebody else's story. Um, that seemed, seemed a bit uh, disingenuous, so uh, I decided to keep thinking. And it actually hit me uh, the night before last. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, it snuck up on me. Um, but so I'm sitting in my bed, 
uh, and trying to think about what am I going to say uh, and trying to avoid thinking about it. So I'm going through some old emails. And I found one from my friend Key, and it was titled uh, Cats and Kudzu. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the southern part of the United States. Uh, kudzu is uh, a terrible plant that's just eating the south. Um, uh, and there's no way to get rid of it. But So I read this email, and it was stories. Her and I had once had this, this plan that we were going to write our college memoir. Um, we graduated in 09, and we still haven't been published. Um, <laughs> But so I go through this email and I start reading stories that her and I said, you know, told back and forth. Um, and I started thinking about Key. And her and I always competed to see who would have the highest GPA. She won that one. Um, and then I started thinking about my friend Anna. And her and I always competed about who was going to, you know, be the loudest or uh, who would be the center of attention at wherever we were together. Uh, we usually tied there. One time we did compete over uh, a common love interest. I won that one. Um, and, you know, then I started thinking about Colin. And he and I would always have these uh, deep philosophical discussions about uh, how the world works and politics and uh, always tried to compete on who could fit in the most still Magnolia quotes into a conversation, um, which he does vote Democrat now, so I, I won that one. Um, uh, and... You know, then I thought about my really good friend Jessica, uh, and her and I, we were always like brothers and sisters, uh, always trying to talk over the other one uh, and get the next word in. Um, you know, Colin's in Oklahoma City, Key's in San Francisco, uh, Jessica's in Washington, D.C., uh, Anna's in Panama City, uh, and I'm here in Juneau, Alaska, so we're all over the country. But, you know, I talk to these people more than I do my actual brothers and sisters. And I realized I do have brothers and sisters. It isn't always about blood relation or the people that share a parent or something like that, but it's, it's those people that are there for you. And, you know, if Jessica called me tomorrow and said she'd need me, I'd drop everything and fly across the country for her. And so the more I thought about it, I did realize I do have brothers and sisters and I do have those wonderful experiences uh, and people that I hold dear in my heart. And so I, over the last couple of days, I've made a point to call all of them uh, and let them all know how much I love them and uh, remind them of all the times that I bested them. Um, uh, <laughs> but, you know, they had some pretty good times. They bested me too. Um, so maybe mine's not about traditional, my story may not be about traditional um, sibling rivalry, but if you take anything from it, I hope you take that... Uh, your brothers and sisters don't have to be related to you. Uh, these people are my brothers and sisters, and when it's time to go into the great unknown, they're the people that I want around me uh, and that I want to be surrounded with, and I feel love in my heart for them, and I'm so thankful, and my life's better to have them. Uh, but thank you all for listening to my story. Our next speaker <clears throat> is Thomas Fletcher. Here is the story of the family named Fletcher. Cue Brady Bunch theme song. Bill Fletcher had four young children, Ted, Mary, and Charles, and Sarah, before his first wife succumbed to breast cancer. Adele Williams had a daughter, Jackie, before moving to the United States from New Zealand. They met and had a little Fletcher, also known as Thomas Fletcher. 
For those interested in birth order and family dynamics, this means Fletcher is A, the youngest of six kids, B, the only child of his parents. Wait, one important edit. Fletcher is the youngest of seven kids, as he found out one day. Um, yeah, so I remember where I was at when I found out about my brother, Richard. Uh, I was driving um, through Massachusetts, and I got a phone call on my really nice moto, black moto uh, cell phone. I think my first cell phone I pulled over. It was my brother-in-law, and um, that was the news. He's like, I think there's something you should know. Uh, apparently, your mom gave up a son for adoption when she was 23. We don't really know the details. Um, that's the story. So, you know, I do remember exactly the farm field and the dirt road and the farmhouse and everything. But I wasn't really shocked. I was more, uh, maybe a little bit surprised, but my mom uh, has had a lot of secrets. She kind of had this life that she had built and wasn't really interested in anyone prying the top off of it and learning kind of where she came from or her, what happened before, beforehand. So she's not a historian. She's not a um, journal writer or interested in talking about the past at all. In fact, I think she kind of thinks our fascination with her personal details or anyone else's is kind of morbid or maybe uh, a little immature. So this wasn't really, I don't think this was really going to be welcome news for her, um, something she'd really want to discuss or talk about which turned out to be right. But we wanted to meet him. So we did meet Richard. He met us, really. He came and found us. And for our family, with all these haves and everything, uh, it's kind of hard to explain. But my mom really favored us, too. And it kind of made the other four become this united group, uh, even to this day. And so for my sister and I, who were always the kind of loud, talky people, it was really nice to maybe meet another one of us. So Richard shows up, and um, we meet him in Seattle, and uh, he come, brings his wife, Chris, and anybody who's met someone from New Zealand or Australia, he's from both, know that those people are really fun to travel with. You know, you, there's lots of doing, lots of uh, going out and having a good time. I don't think I ever would have gone to the Space Needle, for instance, in my 100-plus trips to Seattle without Richard. So we did that. We ate. We drank a lot. Um, I think I might have more of my liver if I hadn't met Richard. Um, we ended up in Portland where my sister was living in a restaurant. And uh, it was kind of time to get to know each other. And so Richard and I were really, you know, going at it like some bro time, right? Like some trading, some barbs and some different ways of saying things, you know, whinging. And I think he turned to my sister and said, come on, Woody the bridge, get over it, that kind of thing, and no one, so my sister, I haven't really explained, but my sister's not really a, uh, someone you can talk to in that way. <laughs> She's an alpha and um, didn't really appreciate being a third wheel in a, our bar room conversation. So anyway, so I saw this look on her face, and I was like, oh no, here it comes, and, and the waitress comes over, and it's time for her to tell a joke. And Richard didn't know her yet, so he didn't know to worry. And she looks at the waitress. She goes, uh, excuse me, excuse me, I'll take a Stella Etoit, please. 
And I was like horrified. <laughs> and the waitress was horrified, maybe thinking about kicking us out, I don't know. And we just started laughing and laughing and laughing. It was great. And, and, uh, and one really great talent of these Kiwi Aussies is that no matter how kind of laughing drunk you seem when it comes time to order another drink that can sober up really quickly and make sure it happens that you don't get kicked out of the restaurant or bar. <laughs> so later, um, we were up in the hotel and uh, up in this hotel room and it was time for some more uh, catching up brother-wise and uh, we were wrestling. And uh, Richard's a big man, um, <laughs> rugby player, used to be a truck driver, appalled I can't do a truck driver hitch. He's shown me a few times now. Um, but I, I had him pinned. Um, I had him pinned, and I was like kind of happy about it. And, and he starts shaking. I was like, oh, no, it's just one of these like macho, Kiwi, Australian dudes who cries when he drinks too much. I, I don't know. There's a lot of those guys out there. And um, then he just like kind of shook me right off. And I realized he's like laughing. Like, this is all you got? Like, <laughs> what were your brothers doing when you grew up? Like, why haven't you been trained better in the arts of being a man? Um, I needed that. Okay. So, you know, he's come back several times, and um, on one of his trips here, he loves Juno a little bit too much for my taste, but um, <laughs> he really wanted to meet our mom, and so we were going to try to make this happen. And I, I think the assumption is that uh, if you, you know, you just you would want to meet any of your children, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That, when I rehearsed this, that wasn't the funny part. <laughs> um, but for, for real, it's, it's, I don't think it's true necessarily. I think whatever you do to give up a child, uh, whatever that trauma is, um, you can't ask anyone to revisit that unless they really want to. And that was true of my mom. She um, really wasn't enough for this. Uh, but nevertheless, we went back to Maine and we, we, we waited... Uh, about a few hours away from their house uh, to see if she would meet Richard. And uh, it was my job to call her every day. I'm, I'm not, I guess it says a lot about my part in the family. And um, it went on for a couple days, and finally it was the last day, and I was like, okay, Mom, this is it. He's leaving tomorrow. What do you think? And she was like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know if I really want to do this. She's like, talk to your dad. So my dad gets on the phone. He's like, look, you got to stop this. Like, you're making your mom upset, which is making me upset. And uh, she, it's just not going to happen. She's not going to do it. So you need to get over it. And uh, I hear this voice in the background. I didn't say that from my mom. And she gets back on the phone. She's like, what's the deal? I'm like, well, he's leaving tomorrow. This is your last chance to meet him. And... Uh, I was like, are you going to do it or not? She's like, she's like, oh, okay, I'll do it. Kind of like in a teenage, uh, I guess I'll wash the dishes kind of voice. And so we went up there to see her, and it was great. It, was, um, it was, wasn't quite a Hallmark Marmon or anything, but it was a, definitely a reunion. And um, she was ready for him, and she took him aside and said, 
uh, when, you know, they told me I wasn't allowed to see you, but I snuck in and, and held you anyway before they took you away. So, that's it. Thanks. You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on November 12, 2014 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Sibling Rivalry. Curious? Visit www.mudrooms.org. Our next speaker is Joe Clark. Joseph Cole Clark is your typical bearded, bear hug, loving fella who, as it turns out, is highly skilled at making inappropriate jokes, just a little more inappropriate. He would rather chase miracles than ghosts and majored in everything at Seattle University before earning a grand total of $2,200 in two years with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps Northwest, which brought him to Alaska. This guy is a bona fide love songwriter and left after forming a band called the Chiller Whales. We're lucky to have Joe here at this moment in time to tell us a story about his big, fat Roman Catholic family that really did not buy into that whole New Agey thing called birth control. Aptly, Joe aims to be a sex therapist when he grows up. No, really, he does. Here's Joe. So I have these memories, one specifically I was of us sitting around the table, like, with our hands clasped, and we all have our eyes closed, and we're saying grace before dinner. And we start to get toward the end of grace, and all the kids are just, like, opening our eyes, looking at everyone else, trying to sneak a peek at the food in front of us, or who's going to get the good ones. Like, who's looking at that big, fat, juicy pork chop? Because it's pork chop night, and the Clark family does not mess around when it was pork chop night. (laughs) You know, and we would get to the amen, and it would be like, Okay, amen. And it's like, you know, we go. That, the amen every night marks the beginning of the daily occurrence of the Clark family hunger games, I felt like. <laughs> and, I, you know, I have a huge family. Um, Marcus, I think you can relate to this. Um, so there are actually nine of us uh, from the same parents. There's Jake, Becky, Mike, Marie, Ellie, Nate, me, Emily, and John. Such great names, right? I think we win the award for like the most unique names. Um, and with a surname like Clark. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and we were really Catholic growing up. And I, I mean like really Catholic. We only went to Latin Mass. I have these memories of us huddled around a candle at night, praying the rosary together. And, you know, we never talked about sex growing up. That was a big thing. And families that don't talk about sex... You know what happens, right? Like, everyone has sex. (laughs) I'm telling you, if you have a family and you don't talk about sex, please do it. Right now, I'm going on 15 nieces and nephews. I'm not even kidding. (laughs) That's real. Like, in, in a lot of ways, this should be my natural environment, but I look back at this gigantic cross, and I just, like get PTSD about it, like, it's, like it strikes the fear of the Lord in my heart. <laughs> I'm not Catholic anymore, I'm not religious. Um, I went and tried to tell that to my mom, and uh, the conversation went a little bit like this, yes you are. <laughs> You're baptized, you can't un-Catholic yourself. I was like, okay, now I need to figure out how to tell her I want to be a sex therapist. Which... <laughs> but these things are recorded, right? <laughs> hey mom. 
You know, having a huge family, though, is awesome in a lot of ways. We had, like, this built-in team. We would go and play wiffle ball or kickball in the neighborhood, and it would always be the other neighbor kids versus the Clarks. We all went to the same high school, lived in the same house growing up, had a lot of the same teachers, even though there was a 20-year gap between Jake and John. Um, and, you know, actually a funny tangent, all of, my, of all the nine siblings, five are married, congratulations to them, right? All of those five are married to their high school sweethearts, which, you know, that's not that weird, but when everyone is married to their high school sweetheart, yeah, I've tried to psychoanalyze the shit out of that one. But um, good luck if you want to try. You know, everything was peaches and creams until it came to dinner night. When the pork chops were on the table, table, everyone was for themselves. You know, if you don't have your own back, you got nothing. And we would fight over the dumbest things. Number one, the biggest one, was sitting next to mom, the golden seat. Who's going to sit next to mom? I don't know why. Like, why was that such a big deal? And poor dad. <laughs> Like, he would get home frazzled, and he, had, he was jumping around job to job. He would come home working a super long day from, like, the, the paper mill he worked when I was younger. And he would just be grumpy and already just terrified from his day. And he would come home, and we had just terrorized the house, melted crayons into our space heater. That was my favorite. <laughs> and then he would have to sit around dinner, and we would just only want to sit next to Mom. I feel bad for him. We would fight over... Um, you know, it's, you had to finish all your food. And so that was fine until vegetables were involved. My right, like, and vegetables were involved every night. So we would have to figure out the most devious ways to get rid of our vegetables. And we had, I have this memory of this table that had slats. And there were little, like, gaps between the slats. And we would just unabashedly shove food into those slats. And it just got really nasty. I was talking to my sister, Ellie. And she said that she has this memory of looking into those slats one time, and there were actual maggots. So. Yeah, yeah, that happened. Um, you know, and dinner would usually end. Actually, one time, I remember, this is great, I got so mad at my brother Nate for taking something off my plate that I, I hurled a fork at his head as hard as I could. I just threw it as hard as I could, and it hit him in the face. And, you know, this is normal stuff, and I feel like, good thing it didn't get him in the eye or something. And dinner would usually end with uh, Dad slamming his fist on the table, just, like, pleading to the heavens, please shut up! <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly what he was thinking. Um, and, and then the big, the big rivalry at the end was, who is going to be the poor soul stuck with dishes? And so we would always use other chores to, as, like, manipulation. Um, Oh, I swept earlier, so I don't have to do the dishes. That was a big thing. You know, fight, we fought so much and pulled our hair and shot BB guns at each other in the forehead and spit wads everywhere and tied our sister to the tree instead of having to babysit her. Like, these are all normal things <laughs> growing up um, and just terrorizing. But I was looking, thinking back on it, and I got to talk to all, all my siblings the last couple days. I learned I was going to do this talk like a couple days ago. I got a text from Alita. She's like, eh, can you do this? I was like, yeah. Um, I was thinking about it after talking to them, and, you know, I didn't realize how important those days were to me and how important that chaos and those just the 
insane loudness that was every single day. You know, we had so much. And one, we had a family who was together, um, parents who were always together. We had this group of people to share that time and have that food and sit around and terrorize our dad. <laughs> um, and I was really thankful for that. And I don't think I would trade it for anything. So, that's it. Our next speaker tonight is Kate Troll. She's not only related to the famous Alaskan artist Ray Troll, but to four other trolls. <laughs> she is one of six in the close-in-age troll tribe. Four of the six moved to Alaska. Kate claims to have been the first to live in Alaska, coming up here in the fall of 1977. She has lived in Juneau since 1992. The story she is going to tell tonight is but a glimpse of what it was like to grow up a troll. When asked over the phone if she could spell her last name, Kate replies, troll, like under the bridge. Here she is, out from under the bridge, Kate Troll. So here is the troll lineup. Timmy, Kathy, Ramy, Mimi, Terry, Susie. And then we grew up and we became Tim, Kate, Ray, Mary, Terry, and Susie. I think we're still waiting for my younger sisters to grow up. Um, even though I was not the oldest, I was treated as the oldest when I asked my father, why is it that I seem to be getting disciplined more than the others? And he said, well, it's because you're the oldest. And I said, but, but, but I'm not. <laughs> he says, Tim's the oldest. He says, yeah, but, but Tim only has to accept the example for Ray, and Ray's always in the basement drawing by himself. That doesn't count. And you have to set the example for your three younger sisters. And I was like, whoa. Now, I think my dad set me up right then and there for sibling rivalry, don't you think? I mean, really. So when Tim became an altar boy, and of course girls couldn't become an altar boy, what, what was I left to do? Well, oh, oh, oh I thought, oh, I, I can become a nun, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so um, actually my middle name actually reflects this desire to be, to be a nun. You know, so there you have it, Tim became an altar boy, and I kind of one-upped him by pulling out the nun card. You can see how far that got me. <laughs> and, then, and then along comes Brother Ray, the artistic wonder kid. And, and I can remember I was the first to, like, get a little award for drawing. And it was, you know, it wasn't much. It was like one of those little participant ribbons that all the kids get nowadays. But, you know, I took great pride in it. Then the next year, Ray came along, and of course, he submitted his drawings, and he walked away with best in show. No surprise there. So I stopped drawing, um, and this was just the beginning of Ray discovering the incredible artist within himself. You know, it didn't matter whether it was playing a guitar or pottery or drama. He sort of excelled in it all. But, but I was the first to ride a bike, and I was the first to swim across Cuca Lake, where we oftentimes spent our summers. Although my brother Tim, who is now the sort of self-declared family historian, you know, he's kind of revisiting the history, and he thinks he was the first to swim across the lake, and the first to come to Alaska. But um, 
And, and, and where this whole notion of being first sort of came from, uh, it was sort of fueled by my dad. We, we traveled around a lot. We were in the military, but we would always go to upstate New York for our family reunions and uh, or spend the summers. And when he would take different routes, and whenever we would be coming up against a new state, a new border, he would let us know, hey, there's a new border coming up. Who's going to be first? You know, and mind you, this is before seatbelts. So all, all six of us are just <laughs> running to the front, you know, reaching as far. I'm first. I got Indiana. Yeah. It's like, who cares who got Indiana? But, you know, my mother was horrified at the scene. Um, and, you know, and the other place that the sibling rivalry sort of acted itself out was uh, when it came time to watch TV in the evening uh, downstairs. And there was um, parents each had, you know, two big chairs, and then there was one other big soft chair. You know, and who was going to get the big chair? Well, the rules became very elaborate. What's your name on it? Uh, if you got up to go to the bathroom, did you declare savesies? You know, um, and you couldn't have the chair for Dick Van Dyke and I Love Lucy. You know, that's just not it. But when it was your birthday, you got the chair regardless. You know? I can't remember a single birthday present I got, but I do remember sitting in that chair. <laughs> yeah, I'm really loving it. Um, when it, it came to my, my sister Mary, uh, that sibling rivalry sort of acted itself out. Uh, we had to when we had to share a horse together, and the horse's name was Candy. Stupid name, but um, you know. And then it was all about well, who does Candy love most? You know, and she runs faster for me, uh, but I take better care of her. And in the end, I finally had to admit that uh, my sister Mary, her uh, horse statue was far superior to mine. I mean, her collection of horse statues was far superior to mine. When it came to my younger sisters, it sort of acted, the sibling rivalry sort of acted out uh, through athleticism, and mostly on the basketball court. And thank God I had a hook shot and could always close out the game of horse. Um, but um, most of the time, it was sort of in back at the lake, and uh, my sister Susie decided uh, one time that instead of just swimming across the lake, and the lake is about a mile across, that we're going to go over and back. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know if I can do that. How about if I go over, and then when I come back, I'll use my fins? And she says, only if you want an asterisk next to your name and family, <laughs> you know record book. And I'm like, you're threatening me with the asterisk? And she was. So I went over and back and swam and made it just fine. And then uh, comes up for a family reunion time again, and she announces she wants to swim the length of the lake. And that's 22 miles. You know, she was on her own for that one. You know, um, but sort of getting back to... Uh, where things are, like with, with uh, my brother Tim, um, when I really think about it, he was the first to come to the real Alaska. I moved to Anchorage, he moved to Bethel, you know. <laughs> and I beat it by a couple of months, but really, you know, he's the first to really move to Alaska and it really captures the essence of Alaska in all of his work that he's done. And I know that... Um, Regardless of what I do, I will always be known as Rachel's sister. And, 
and I'm good with that. Um, I mean, I am the one who brought him up to catch a can and hired him to work in my fish store, and he did his first fish t-shirt for, for me, and, you know, the rest is history, right? Yeah, it's great. You know, really proud to be Rachel's sister. And then when it comes to my sister Mary, um, I will never have the connection to animals that she has. And the dog, Nellie, that I have right now, I got from her, but... Um, I love her, but I know that she'll always be my sister Mary's dog, for sure. And in regards to my younger sisters, it's a total honor to be an asterisk. Um, because they've gone on, she's, Sister Terry was a competitive bicycle uh, racer and ran 20 marathons and uh, four of them in the Boston Marathon. And, and Susie has gone on to be a triathlon athlete and is a... Uh, nationally ranked open water swim champion and I mean it's totally honored to be an asterisk. Um, so the, the, the bottom line is is that uh, uh, I know that without my sibling relationships uh, I would not be half the person I am today. And I am so thankful that this is being recorded so I can send them the link and they can hear me say this, right? I mean I really genuinely mean I would not be half the person I am today without my sibling relationships. But more importantly, I want them to know I said it first. The next speaker is Dave Parrish. Dave was born here in Juneau in 1952 at St. Anne's Hospital to Dorothy Alaska Dalton Parrish and Robert Lee Parrish, the 10th of 13 children. He's had some firsthand experience with sibling rivalry. I'll say. Dave began working for wages on a truck farm at the ripe old age of nine years and continued in a variety of trades until an early retirement from Alaska Electric Light and Power six years ago. His time is now spent developing um, family and investing in long neglected aspects of creativity with um, his involvement in Woosh Kaday Poetry Slam um, and his spiritual connection to the Baha'i faith and life uh, and time spent in Teneke. Please help me welcome Dave. It took me a long time and a lot of revision to come up with the commentary that I'm going to share tonight. Uh, you know, I think of um, Cain and Abel, <laughs> Joseph and his 12 brothers, Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac. These are the things that come to the forefront of my mind beneath the cross of the Lord. And, you know, I realized these things, uh, that, you know, the intensity of the relationships that I had with my family were, I'm sure, recollected in their minds much more like having Attila the Hun and Robocop <laughs> in the same individual. And... I love my family. I love my parents. You know, I love my brothers. And, you know, iron sharpens iron. And we had conflict from our earliest days. I mean, my older brother, the wonderful character, a very spiritual man, very strong, built like a gibbon. Whenever he stands, his fingertips touch his knees whenever he's standing comfortably. And when we wrestled in high school, this was a huge advantage for him because I got a lot of lungs, a lot of capacity to suffer. And our school, even though it only had 400 students, was third in state. 
I don't know what it was about the farmland that brought out the meanness in humanity. But there were three sets of brothers. And I wasn't one of the state championship brothers, but you know the Andersons and the Swansons were. And by having three sets of brothers like that, you know, it's pretty unusual to have that many out of 12 weights that you've got three state champions. And I saw firsthand just what kind of meanness it took <laughs> to bring about ultimate fighting at home. And uh, my brother and I had philosophical differences. You know, I was basically a fundamentalist Christian, went to the Church of Christ, honored the Lord, and, you know, I was lockstep with my father. And my mother was a much more spiritual human being. You know, she found her relief and her self-medication and her belief in Klingit uh, lore and philosophy. Those were the things that my brother adhered to. So that left us a very fertile ground for conflict. And I'll never forget one day on a Friday night, whenever we came home, you know, we pulled together a dinner, and Mom was in her cups, and we uh, got into a conflict. And the house that we lived in was built in 1892. And, you know, by then it was 1968, and the house was well-worn. And it was a plaster wall and ceiling, and had, you know, uh, newspaper for insulation at 50 below. And my brother and I were pretty angry with each other. I don't recollect the exact reason for the anger, but we started rolling around, bouncing one another off the wall, banging holes in the sheetrock. And my mother was lying in bed, and her whole ceiling collapsed on top of her bed. Half-inch sheetrock, a whole ceiling full fell down on her, and it really irritated her sodden state of mind. But she came storming up that stair. We could hear her coming up the stairs. And, there, you know, whenever someone is so accurate with the shoe and with ashtrays, she had a sidearm with that ashtray that was deadly accurate at 20 feet. And when you feel an angular ashtray bounce off your head, it sends a jolt of lightning down to your toes that's biblical. <laughs> So when she came up those stairs, we heard her coming over the din of our cursing and banging into one another. And when that door threw open, we knew there was hell to pay. And she took our heads and our hair, and she banged our heads together. And it left a knot on the head that was so intensely painful, it brought the conflict to a complete halt. So... You know, that was just one of so many incidents that were bonding, but, you know, for my brother and I. The first thing that I remember being told about as a little child in my efforts at getting to the forefront of the line of 13 children was whenever I fell or perhaps was thrown out of a second-story window at 3110 Douglas Highway. The Quonset Hut is still there. And I think often, how did I survive that? I was taken to the hospital, and the doctor stitched up my head and reassured my mother that that was only fat that was coming out of my head. So that was the first significant incident of 
conflict that manifested in trying to get to the front of the line. Another incident was when my little sister fell out of the car in, on the freeway in Indianapolis, chasing after her little hand muff. And, you know, my dad didn't realize that a child had fallen out. And all of us in the back seat were screaming, Carol's fallen out of the car! And eventually dad stopped, and, and a guy behind us saw the muff fall and saw the little girl fall after it, and he pulled 90 degrees through traffic and blocked people from running over her. And dad backed up and picked her up and put her back in the car, and amazingly, she was okay. Another horrible incident that was expressive of the tra trauma that our family was going through was whenever I built my first slingshot and was using my little brother and sister as targets to make sure that they could run a little bit faster. And I was giving them a good chance by having them 50 feet away. And I shot through a culvert and unluckily for my brother, I knocked out three of his permanent front teeth. The trauma of that event caused me to go to work and spend the next nine years of my life, every Christmas and every birthday, trying to make up for the losses that I'd inflicted on my family. So I'm so happy that I had a mom and dad that were so chaotic because, you know, the neglect and the self-involvement of the alcoholism and the painting and the writing all turned me to think that there's a better way. There's got to be a better way than this fundamentalist Christianity to help people grow. And that's how I discovered the Baha'i faith and the hope that it offers for a united world and for people to love one another and progress without end. So I'm grateful to my mom and dad and all of my siblings in spite of the fact that I gave them some pretty hard times. Thank you. Our last speaker tonight is Jessalyn uh, Rintela. We're going with Jessalyn Rintela. She's an only child originally from Kennebunk, a town of 30,000 people on the coast of southern Maine that plays host to a swarm of tourists from down south every summer and calls itself a drinking town with a fishing problem. A junior resident by luck, Jessalyn has been blessed with some excellent Alaskan adventures despite generally opting not to go hiking when possible. She lives with her cat, Minky. Per the introduction, I am an only child, which makes this a very interesting theme for me. <laughs> um, and being an only child, not universally, but for me anyway, has had some fun consequences, like um, learning to share when you're 25 and have obnoxious roommates, uh, a little belatedly. And I'm not just an only child. There were no like other younger cousins, no other grandchildren, no like parents, friends with kids. So I never really interacted with anyone who wasn't exactly my age or an adult. So I'm absolutely bewildered when it comes to children. I've never held an infant. I've never babysat a toddler. There was this one terrible time where a child threw up and I just like left it on top of the washing machine because I didn't know what else to, to do with it. Um, so 
it turns out that as I get older, unlike when I was 16 or when I was 25, that this big blank in my like fundamental human understanding gets bigger. <laughs> um, because now I know people with children of their own, and it turns out they're kind of important in their lives. Um, <laughs> so, and I just, I have no idea what to do. Um, so my only point of reference when it comes to kids or childhood is my own childhood which, again, as an only child, tends to like spiral in on itself and just get weirder and weirder and probably isn't a good point of reference at all, but that's all I have. Um, so, as an only child, I spend a lot of time alone. This, I think, is fairly typical, again, if not universal. And not only would I spend time alone, I was really insistent on my sense of privacy. It was like, I wanted to take this necessity that I was going to be alone and I wanted to make it volitional so that I was choosing to do this. So I wouldn't just sit in my room, I would sit in my closet. <laughs> and I would pull, I would turn the light on and pull the door shut behind me, which got more awkward as I got bigger. <laughs> so in the closet, um, there was, because I, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I didn't have a dollhouse, but I had dolls, and so they lived on the closet shelf, which is why I would shut myself in the closet to play with my dolls on the closet shelf. And at first, it started out like pretty normally. Um, there was a very typically classical gendered family with a mom and a dad and a son and a daughter. And like, okay, that works, sure. Until, I don't know how it happened, if it was the cat or if it was me or if it was a skiing accident, but the mom lost her leg. <laughs> so, that complicated life on the shelf for a little while. Um, plus, then we added some Legos and I think there were some bears and possibly dogs. Things got a little weird for a while. Uh, <clears throat> eventually, there was this one fortuitous day when I got this, you know, gift from the heavens, a set of six matching little plastic, I think they were strawberry shortcake because they all smelled, <laughs> matching plastic dolls. Um, and that was great. That was wonderful. I was so excited. And I had had this habit of, um, do we remember recordable VHS cassettes? tapes and they would come, every tape would come with its own little sheet of stickers so that you could like, I guess the idea was like you would label what movie it is instead of using a sharpie, you'd use the stickers. So I would like sneak down into the living room at night and steal the sticker sheets <laughs> and label all of my dolls with their names from the sticker sheets. Except now there's six of them, and I don't have six sticker sheets. <laughs> like that's, those are just too prime real estate. So instead of giving them actual names, I give them numbers. <laughs> All right, good. So then we have one through six. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was, like, I was trying, I imagine, I was trying to wrap my kid brain around the fact that there were now six, like, they were, you know, young dolls. They were meant to be, like, somewhere between six and ten-year-old girls, I think. And there's not really parents anymore. There's not really adults in the household. So I'm trying to, like, make sense of this. And so I decide that instead of being, like, a family or a household or something, it's an orphanage. <laughs> I don't know if I'd read too much Dickens or, like, what my problem was. <laughs> so I decide it's an orphanage on the shelf. Okay, Good. <laughs> um, 
And so with these new six dolls, I have to differentiate them somehow. So I try really hard, again, as an only child, to differentiate these six siblings to give them their own unique individual personalities. And it worked to an extent. Um, two, for example, really liked baking. <laughs> Unfortunately, so did four. <laughs> and so did six. <laughs> So it was kind of, it, I didn't do a great job <laughs> giving them their own personalities, but I tried. Um, and so I tried not to play favorites, but I totally had a favorite. And I never would have told anyone um, right up until now. Um, and three, three was my favorite. She was great. She was caring and empathetic and responsible. She totally took on this like parent role that was completely missing. Um, and so I really was attached to her, but I would never tell them because you know, <laughs> that would be bad. <laughs> um, so <laughs> when in doubt, <laughs> what one does, I called my mother. <laughs> so I called my mother and I'm like, mom, did you have, um, so all that time I spent in the closet, and she's like, yeah. <laughs> All that time you spent in the closet. Why were you in the closet? And she's like, oh, you didn't know. It's like, didn't know what? So you didn't know that I was running an orphanage in the closet. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's great. Um, so I proceeded to tell her about the six dolls, which she vaguely remembered, and how I had this favorite one. And I described her traits, and my mother's like, you are nothing like her. <laughs> You are nothing like your favorite doll at all. You are caring and empathetic and responsible are not the top three adjectives that I would apply to you. <laughs> like, okay, thank you. I appreciate your honesty. I totally agree. It, it's nothing that I didn't already suspect. But, but the funny part was hearing that from my mother, even though I already knew that. Um, we're each other's only family. It's she and I. Um, so... Hearing her say, I know who you are, and I love you, it made me just wish, just a little bit, that instead of it being just me that she had to count on, that there were six of us to be there for her and to share all of those many different qualities that one person can't embody. Thanks. This is KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on November 12, 2014. The theme for the evening was sibling rivalry. To tell your story or to figure out when you can attend the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Alita Bus and Steve Suing. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night.